Jesus has been headed to Jerusalem, determined, relentless, unstoppable. And he's been telling anybody who would listen that he is going there to die. But no one is listening. Then, just as he is about to reach the great moment, as he's about to top the Mount of Olives, where they will see the great Jerusalem up above them, the city on the hill, he stops to tell them one last parable. It's a strange story, but one that isn't too hard to figure out. It's about a man who is going very determinedly, relentlessly, unstoppably, to a faraway city to become king. And some people want to help him, and some people want to stop him. Some people don't want him to be king. In the story, the people who help the king while he is far away will get money and power. But what about those who try to stop him from being king? Jesus says what will happen to them. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me, he says. And then he bursts into tears. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, the extraordinary story. Today we're going to talk about the parable of the ten gold coins, as it's called in Luke, or the parable of the talents, as it's known in Matthew, where Jesus later tells this story. I love both versions of the story, but especially the one in Matthew. I said earlier that the passage about the woman with the hemorrhage was one of two passages in the Gospels that have most guided my life. Well, this is the other one. I can honestly say that this passage has changed the whole trajectory of my life, such that without it, I wouldn't live where I live, have the family I have, or do the work that I do. But more on that when we get to the Matthew version. Let me start with the Luke version, from Luke chapter 19. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He therefore said, A nobleman went into a far country to receive kingly power and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten pounds and said to them, Trade with these till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent an embassy after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingly power, he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by trading. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your pound has made ten pounds more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, I shall give you authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has made five more pounds. And he said to them, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your pound, which I kept laid away in a napkin, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man, and you take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you out of your own mouth, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank, and at my coming I should have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the pound from him and give it to him who has the ten pounds. 
And they said to him, Lord, he has ten pounds. Jesus said, I tell you that to everyone who has will more be given. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me. And when Jesus drew near Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. I'm going to end there, but I think the beginning of this reading is very suggestive. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And then immediately after the parable is over, we have Jesus seeing Jerusalem and weeping. So this parable is the way Jesus caps off the journey that so fascinated Luke, his relentless march to Jerusalem. Why is this the last thing Jesus says before finally seeing Jerusalem, the end of his long journey? Well, let's look at three reasons. The first is historical, the second is substantive, and the third is dramatic. First, the historical reason. It says it clear enough. He told the parable because they thought the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. His disciples expected him to be crowned the king when he got to Jerusalem. We see here what we saw when we looked at James and John's request. Jesus was going to be made king, king over the chosen people and maybe the Romans too while they were at it. He had told the apostles that they would be important people then. They wanted to be princes. Well, this parable is telling them that not only will he not be crowned upon arriving in Jerusalem, he would be opposed and sent far away. And not only are they not going to be rulers of his people, they are going to have a job to do, working hard to use his wealth to build the kingdom. This is huge. This is the vocation of every Christian. Jesus Christ is going to be an absent king and we will have to do his work. In other words, they weren't going to be like the sheriff of Nottingham. They were going to be like Robin Hood. In the old story, King Richard the Lionheart is away in the Holy Land fighting a crusade, a mission that could take many years in his day. In his absence, his brother John, aided by the sheriff of Nottingham, rules in a dictatorial and oppressive way. When the king's away, The true followers of the king have to work their tails off to use what they have to the greatest benefit of others despite their corrupt rulers. Jesus is telling the apostles to be ready for something like that. Be ready to have to work to preserve his kingdom while he is away. We'll see more of that after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and more stories that he'll tell. So that's the historical reason for the parable. There's a substantive reason too. Look at the details here. Everyone in this story is given the same five pounds or five gold coins in some translations. One uses his very well and raises twice as much as he got. How? He invested it. Maybe by buying and running a farm, helping feed others and employ people, and through diligence and expertise and hard work made his investment pay dividends. The king says that because he was faithful in these small things, he will be given a huge reward authority over 10 cities. A second one came and he had doubled the value of his investment. Maybe he did this by running the mill or the bakery and he gets a big reward too, five cities to rule. The last one reminds me of James and John. Remember, they came to Jesus with their mom asking to rule for free. They didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, they were the ones who wanted to destroy that city that rejected God. Hearing the parable, James and John must have recognized themselves in the words Jesus puts in the last one's mouth. Lord, here is your gold coin, which I kept and laid away. 
I knew that you were severe and you can miraculously do what you want, so I did nothing, but waited for you to give me the victory I seek. The king has their gold coin taken and given to the industrious, hard-working servants. And thus it shall be for us if we choose the path they chose. Because I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. If we share our spiritual treasure, it will grow. If we hide it away, we lose it. But the apostles must have recognized not James and John so much as two other figures in this story also. And Jesus wants us to recognize them too, I think. It may be why Luke tells the story of the two surprise stops on the way to Jericho. Jesus had been traveling down the Jericho road and stopped twice. First for the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, then for the small rich man, Zacchaeus. I think this parable explains another reason why Jesus might have stopped for these two men. They had used everything they had, the best they could, to maximize the truth in their life. The blind beggar had very little, but learned how to recognize the son of David when he heard he was passing by. And Zacchaeus, who had quite a bit, used his circumstances to facilitate an encounter with Christ. He had to climb a tree, in fact, to do it. And that's what we have to do. Use what we have for the one who gave it to us. But there are other characters in this story, the enemies of the king. And that brings us to a third reason he tells the story here. The first was a historical reason to correct their false expectations of his kingdom. The second was a substantive spiritual reason. This third one is the dramatic reason. In fact, this story tells the original drama of the fall of man, the fall of each of us, and how God will reverse that fall. In Revelation 12, remember, Satan was like the enemies of the king in this story. He objected to the crowning of the woman in the sky as queen over him and her son as his king. And while she was laboring with the new king, while he was far away, you might say, Satan revolted and let it be known that he didn't want this king. He said he would stop using his gifts for God and would use them for himself. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did following him. Satan convinces them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a symbolic way of saying that we too decided to take the unique gifts God gave us, intellect and will, and spend them on ourselves, not God. And what happened then? God had to give them punishments that fit their crime. They got pain of labor in making the earth fertile and in populating the earth. Well, Jesus is saying that while he is away, our new marching orders are to take the gifts he has given us and start using them industriously for him. How do we do that? The church teaches that the fall of man gave us a triple concupiscence that we've had ever since Adam. And it means we use money, pleasure, and power for ourselves. But he wants us to use them for him. By spending money with the common good in mind, like our productive farmer, we make it productive for ourselves and for others, building a business, building a home, giving it away. He wants us to use our gift of sexuality, not just to delight ourselves, but also for the common good, to unite with a spouse and bring a new life to God and to build a family. He intends for us to use our ability to administer and control in order to serve the needs of our neighbor, not lord it over them. And that brings us to the last two lines of the gospel I read. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me, says the king in the story. This shows how Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself who created all things, must act when his free offer of grace is rejected. 
He is the ground of all being, the source of all life. He is the reason all things exist. He is the way, the truth, and the life. His relationship to us is like the sun's relationship with a plant. If the plant hides from the sun, the plant withers, dies, and decays. If we freely cut ties with God, the sun, then the metaphor that works best here, like it or not, is slay them before me. That's what happens when you cut yourself off from your source. That's what happens when you cut yourself off from Jesus, who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. If people reject the way, they have no way forward. If they reject the truth, they reject reality. If they reject life, well, they only have death. So, how does Jesus, true man, our good shepherd, our friend and companion, feel when his people reject his love? That's what we get next week. He draws near Jerusalem, sees the city, and weeps over it, expressing how much he wishes they would accept his offer and come to him rather than turning to his enemies. But let's look at this from a practical perspective, the perspective that has made such a difference in my life. For that, we'll turn to Matthew's version. This version is the one Jesus gives in Matthew 25, just before the events of the Passion start. Describing the coming of the kingdom of God, Jesus says, For it will be as when a man going on a journey called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Immediately the one who received five talents went and traded with them and made another five. Likewise, the one who received two made another two. But the man who received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. After a long time, the master of these servants came back and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came forward bringing the additional five. He said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who received two talents also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew that you were a demanding person, harvesting where you did not plant and gathering where you did not scatter. So out of fear, I went and buried your talent in the ground. Here it is, back. His master said to him in reply, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I did not plant and gather where I did not scatter? Should you not then have put my money in the bank so that I could get it back with interest on my return? Now then, take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will grow rich. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And throw this useless servant into the darkness outside, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. So that's Matthew's version. And talents used here in this parable is where we get the term talents for our abilities and our skills. But talents in the ancient world were like gold bars that represented a lot of money, like a million dollars. So let's look at each of these servants. One thing I notice is that the one with the least talents needs to work hard, but the one with many talents needs to work harder. The one who received five talents in Jesus' parable worked very hard and multiplied his talent. He couldn't do that just through his natural aptitude or skill. 
Our personal talents don't accomplish things without our effort, and that's a hard lesson for the very talented to learn. An economics professor here at Benedictine College told me that he gives his senior students a demanding assignment each year. It involves almost daily work over several months compiling data and doing calculations. Students hate it while they do it and greatly appreciate the experience after it's done. The professor told me that he has found that often the most talented students fail miserably at the project. Too often, kids who are naturally smart, good writers, good with numbers, have gotten into the habit of coasting on their talents. They do good work effortlessly, so they never develop the habit of applying effort to their work. When they need to step up or go the extra mile, the interior resources they need to do it just aren't there. The people who become truly great are people with a lot of talent who work hard, like Mozart. He was a child prodigy, and often being a child prodigy ruins a person's shot at greatness, because it's easy to show off and coast when you have a lot of natural talent. Mozart refused to coast. He worked hard on his talent and composed remarkable pieces at a very young age. It works the same with figure skaters, too. Jeff Colvin, in his book, Talent is Overrated, wrote, A study of figure skaters found that sub-elite skaters spend lots of time working on the jumps that they could already do, while skaters at the highest level spend more time on the jumps they can't do, the kind that ultimately win Olympic medals and that involve lots of falling down before they're mastered. He even quotes a great figure skater saying, quotes, landing on your butt 20,000 times is where a great performance comes from. So let's apply this to the spiritual life. Some of us have spiritual gifts. Maybe that includes the kinds of people who listen to a podcast like this. We're naturally more pious. We have a talent for the faith life. We enjoy reading about it and discussing it, and we want to act on it. We get a lot out of prayer. We know our apologetics, cold, and our conscience is well-formed and alert. The great temptation of religious people is to rely on our natural spiritual gifts and not work to multiply them. We multiply them by reaching out to new people through our example and our words, giving them what we have so that they reflect Jesus Christ in the ways we do and more. In prayer, it means what Ignatius of Loyola said, when you hit a dry spell, when it's hard to pray, pray harder, like an elite runner when they hit a hill. So the very talented are just as lazy and proud as the least talented, sometimes more so. Church Father Origen of Alexandria said, quotes, When you see one who has the power of teaching and of benefiting souls, hiding this power, though he might have a certain righteousness of life, doubt not that such a one hides his talent in the earth. End quote. Judas was a high-talent guy like that, chosen by Jesus to be among his original twelve, and he botched it. But an example of a five-talent Catholic might be Mother Teresa. She was an organizer who built a group of nuns recognized the world over. She was also a deep spiritual thinker who expressed the ideas of the faith with energy and clarity. She was also a great missionary, serving the poor effectively. She also knew how to communicate her work to others, and she did tirelessly, focusing her energy on those she could serve, but also on those who could fund her work. She was a formidable fundraiser, and she was amazing at attracting volunteers. She used her talents effectively such that she made an enormous contribution to the world. Next are the medium-level talents. They might follow Jesus better if they had read Malcolm Gladwell. 
In his book, Outliers, The Story of Success, Gladwell gives examples of people who benefited from what he calls the 10,000 hours rule. They started out with some natural talent, but then put in an enormous amount of work, days and months and years spent honing their craft. His examples include the Beatles, who played more than a thousand gigs in Hamburg, Germany, early in their career, and Bill Gates, who got access to a 1968 computer at age 13 and spent hours programming it every day after school. Or for one that he doesn't cover, think of NFL quarterback Tom Brady. He was not the most naturally talented, but he was determined to put his whole heart and soul into football, and his hard work got him to where many call him the greatest of all time. One researcher spoke about this by comparing great artists' talent based on their pictures as 10-year-olds versus where they ended up. Great artists can draw well at age 10. They clearly have talent. But if you compare it to other 10-year-olds' drawings, there are other kids who seem to have a greater talent. The difference was the great artists dedicated hours of their time to their craft and got better and better at it. The others didn't. It's the same with us. If we have some spiritual gifts, but not a lot, we need to do more, a lot more. Study, pray, act on our faith. I think a good example of a two-talent spiritual person who buried their talent might be Martha in the story we read. She served with a complaining heart and didn't put her whole self into her task, but she totally learned from it as we saw and turned her life around. A saint who has two talents might be Father Emile Capon. This is a Kansas priest who didn't have all the talents of Mother Teresa. He wasn't a great founder or a great orator, but he had humility and perseverance. And that was enough to make an enormous difference in the lives of the men who knew him in the Korean War, where he was a chaplain. He put his two talents to work tirelessly, no matter what circumstance he was in, showing his love for his men by suffering with them and for them, showing there was no job he was unwilling to do and no amount of discomfort he was unwilling to accept in order to serve them. His heroism won him the Congressional Medal of Honor. But last, the least talented need not worry. God doesn't expect us to do what we can't, but he does expect us to work hard. Jesus' final example, one that applies to where most of us are, is the one-talent guy. But don't think of having one talent as having next to nothing. Remember, a talent was a gold bar of money that was like a million dollars. We're all millionaires in sacramental grace. The talent of baptism made us children of the Father, brothers to Jesus, and partners of the Holy Spirit. Confirmation ups that value. Confession reboots it. The Eucharist gives us a mystic level union with Christ. If we're married, our sacramental grace gives us a bond with our spouse that is so strong no government and no cross can break it. But as for saints, Saint Therese of Lisieux considered herself a one talent, little flower, who had the sacraments and not much more. And she came up with the little way as her path for one talent people to get to God. All you have to do is do small things with great love. Maybe your job has no glory. Okay, well, do it well anyway. Maybe you have to spend your time serving your family. Perfect. Do it with love. Maybe you're a mom or a dad, a wife or a husband who is unappreciated or unloved. Okay, we'll serve with love from your side. Don't bury your talent. Don't hide from your responsibilities. Put your graces to work. 
My wife was reduced to being a one-talent person when she was in the hospital after her stroke and could no longer walk or use her left arm or even talk much at first. She spent her time asking people their name and then helping them learn about their patron saint, even ordering books and holy cards for them. At any rate, it will be no good to simply hand your talent back to God the way you got it. You can say, the world was too scary, the job was too big, and I know you are God, you reap what you do not sow, you can change the world with a snap of your fingers, you don't need me. So I did nothing. We know exactly what he will say. You wicked, lazy servant, and out of your own mouth I condemn you. Should you not then have put my money in the bank so that I could have gotten it back with interest on my return? Okay, so what bank? The church. The church is the bank. If we do the minimum in our sacramental life, Sunday Mass, confession, daily prayer, and volunteer to do works of mercy through the parish or another organization or where we can on our own, we will earn fine interest on our talent. If not, we're living our life in darkness and we will live eternity in darkness also. Throw this useless servant into the darkness outside, says the master in the parable, and Origen gives a chilling commentary on those words. The darkness of hell, he said, has, quote, no light, perhaps not even physical light, where God is not seen, but those who are condemned thereto are condemned as unworthy the contemplation of God, end quote. But we have all the talents necessary to avoid that. But I still haven't said how this story changed my life. Let me start with a caveat. I truly do hate false humility. Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. Behold, all generations shall call me blessed. She was very humble, but she also knew that God had blessed her enormously, and she was willing to name the blessings and give God credit for them. So maybe I risk sounding falsely humble when I say I have always considered myself a one-talent guy. I have a talent for writing, I know that, and that has brought with it a talent for kind of envisioning issues and breaking them down, so I know that too. But my kids say my superpower is making situations awkward. I don't have the greatest interpersonal skills. I have no athletic skills, no fix-it skills. At home, my wife is always the best at planning and seeing opportunities for charity and seeing what is best in the lives of my children. Anyway, this parable changed my life because when I read it, it shook me to my core. I've always been a bit lazy, inclined to do what comes easily and what is fun. I would definitely be the kind of figure skater who does the jumps I excel at over and over again and never challenge myself. When I read this parable, the Holy Spirit zapped me. I had the strong sense that I was in danger. My inclination to doing the minimum was not neutral. It would defeat me. God wanted more. As someone who considers himself a one-talent guy, I fixed my hope on that one line in the parable. Should you not then have put my money in the bank so that I could have got it back with interest on my return? So I decided to make deposits in the church. I have used my writing talent from my 20s until today in support of the church. At home, I've tried to follow my wife's lead and do what I can for our kids and for the parish. If I can do anything for the church, I'll gain some interest on my investment and maybe squeak by, despite my natural inclination to do the minimum. I suggest the same thing to anyone else. It is easy to fall into the trap of thinking that our Christian vocation is to do great things, mighty things, to change the world, to make our unique indelible mark on history. But this gospel encourages a much more mundane take on the Christian life. 
at least for most of us. The parable of the talents describes the Christian vocation not as one of changing the world, but as doing the most with whatever you have in the moment. Do you have a lot of talents? Are you talented in at least one way? If that's you, then be careful. God expects you to do a lot with that talent, to really multiply it. Are you a medium-level talent? So were many of the greatest artists, authors, and athletes of all time. The real difference maker was how hard they trained and practiced and their dedication to perfecting and expanding their talent. Or are you less talented than you would like to be? If so, don't be afraid. Bank your talent in the church or in your family. Pray, fast, serve, and you will please God. And never forget, one talent is worth a million dollars, and each of us are millionaires in sacramental grace. But the ultimate lesson of this parable in both Luke's and Matthew's version is that God is more like a customer than a cop. We tend to think of God as a divine cop who is mainly interested in knowing if we have broken the law or not. He has his ticket book in one hand, his radar gun in the other, and he's watching us like a hawk in case we mess up. It is true that he doesn't want us to break the law, but a divine cop would not have any problem with the one-talent servant returning what was his. Our Lord did because he wants to see us produce for him more and more with the talents he gave us. That makes him like a customer, and it means that we have to look for ways to please the Lord in our life and not just avoid the things that make him mad. Avoiding doing bad things is not enough for Jesus. Those who are truly worthy are those who will accomplish good things. And as we will see even more in future episodes, when Jesus talks about people being damned, it's almost always for sins of omission, not sins of commission. He damns people for not doing what they should have. He doesn't so much damn them for doing something bad. The only real danger is not doing anything with your talents, not praying, not getting to know Christ, not introducing him to others, not helping in your parish. The danger is that you will bury your talent and not do what you're supposed to do. And that's the pressing issue Jesus wants to talk about on the shoulder of the Jericho Road just before he sees Jerusalem on the threshold of the climax of his extraordinary story. He's marching toward victory, toward his big moment. He is days and hours away from giving everything, and this is what he has to say. I am marching to my death. I will give everything I have for the Father. I will hold nothing back, and that's what I want you to do, too. To take everything I have given you and give it back, wasting it on a life that may not be glamorous, wasting it on small acts of love for people who never thank you, wasting it on living your state in life well, no matter what your state in life is. And if you do this, I will change your life. I will transform the offering of your talents into a sacrifice that bears fruit for eternity as part of my own extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story.